Hello and welcome to the Archimedes podcast of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. This time we've got an edition packed full of extremely interesting Archimedesy goodness. Now, for those of you who haven't listened to this repeatedly, you might not know that Archimedes is the evidence-based mini-systematic reviews section of the archives. What we get is real people to ask questions at a here in their daily jobs, things generated by patients and patient situations. They turn this clinical dilemma into a hypothesised scenario, use this to generate a structured clinical question, and then go and search the medical literature. That then allows them to take what appear to be the best bits of evidence and appraise them, that is, weigh up their strengths and their weaknesses, and then synthesise that information, bring it all together, and present a clinical bottom line or three, all sort of balanced with a certainty around how much we believe them and how much new evidence might tipple it over in future. We also have a little section where we think about how might we do evidence-based medicine a bit better? And that's what we're going to do now. On Archimedes, we have gone on at length about the need to think carefully about populations where a diagnostic test is under investigation, and using that in different clinical situations. We've also banged on excessively, to some extent, about the difference between particularising and generalising from clinical trials. Basically, you don't ask the question, would this patient be allowed to go into the study? And do ask the question, what's so different about my patient that I think the treatment in this study could actually act differently than it had found for all those that were in? What we haven't spoken too much about is the way that things change over time. You see, back in the good old days, your average biochemistry laboratory could reliably measure methotrexate levels down to about 0.2 micromoles per litre. A lot of the paediatric oncology protocols using high-dose methotrexate kept rescuing the normal cells with folinic acid until the levels of active drug reached lower than could be measured. And with our modern analyzers, we can now very reliably go down to 0.1 or, or maybe even lower. So do we keep our old instruction until below the limit of detection or change what we do or say. And what we did was we just turned it to less than 0.2 rather than less than the limit of detection. But, but not all questions like this are so obvious. Now, what if the thing that has slipped over time is not the measurement of a drug level, which you can see and the biochemist will tell you about, but the ease of detection of a genetic change or the diagnostic criteria for a condition or the way that they are interpreted how do we then know if a treatment which holds more good than harm for the old way of making this diagnosis with significant symptoms will do the same in the broader definition? What's the prognosis in those who have an incidentally detected change, given that the data were all derived from those that were symptomatic in the older setting? Well, we can hope for new studies and those may come along. But while they do, 
we need to apply the same frameworks of thinking of how to extrapolate from other studies that we look at, like the adult ones and the ones in slightly different conditions. We need to apply those same questions to stuff from the slipped past. How much does my patient differ? What are the important things for my patient? Where does the benefit seem to come from? And we should make sure we discuss the limits of these uncertainties with our colleagues and with the families in question. Now, the clinical pact in question that we have this month comes from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto in Canada, uh, from Dr. Gonzalo Soles Garcia, Telford Young and Bonnie Gisani. Now, they have asked a question that arises from an about a 33 and a half weeker neonate born with a small gestational age secondary to uh, placental insufficiency admitted to the NICU for being a bit prem and also a mild respiratory distress. Over the first few days, it's noted that this little one has got severe hypoglycemia. Uh, and it's not responsive to increasing enteral feed or increasing intravenous feed up to a glucose infusion rate of 18 micrograms per kilo per minute. And it's still going into hypoglycemia. A glucagon infusion is started and eventually this keeps things roughly under control. Now, during this time, high insulin levels were noted in two separate hypoglycemic episodes and the rest of the labs were okay. Feeds are increased um, and fortified with extra bits of sugar, but, but it's still only just acceptable. Everybody was looked at with this um, and the question of using diazoxide treatment uh, being drawn to, uh, to wean the intravenous uh, extra sugars and progress to, to purely enterally fed. But a concern is raised. What about the risk of necrotizing enterocolitis being increased by diazoxide? And given that the baby was prem and uh, IUGR already has risk of NEC. And so the structured clinical question arises of what is the incidence of NEC in neonates treated with diazoxide? Now, as a sort of a question of whether something happens or how often something happens, it doesn't really have a comparator as such. And it's a, a very, very neat and tidy way of pulling things together. Now, what this group did is, is, is really a lot of work for an Archimedes. They went out and searched PubMace, Embed, Cochrane, Scopus and Sinel for trying to draw studies, evaluating diazoxide and looking for those side effects. They thought carefully about how they would define hypoglycemia and the sort of age brackets that they were looking at. And they looked carefully for reported NEC that was done using the standardised Bell's criteria during that admission. They also then did some work trying to synthesise it mathematically as well. When they did this, they drew together seven different observational studies and the total number of babies involved was just over 1,400. 
Now, it really is a worth a significant look at this paper because not only have they done it brilliantly and, and pulled all the bits together, but there are subtleties and complexities in here that are fascinating, actually, when you, when you start to think about it. And I'm not a neonatologist in any way, shape or form. They found that the rate of NEC varied and could be between about 1.5% up to maybe even 13%. But there was huge uncertainty around this and it wouldn't be exactly impossible to find a smallish study they felt that uh, that had over 50% of babies with NEC just through the uncertainties and play of chance that this widely spread data uh, implies. The difficulty with this is that where can you go? Because in this sort of group of late prem neonates, NEC is, is usually described as being under 1%. And when you look at the data from the diazoxide ones, it's pretty much certainly above that level. So this group of infants have a higher risk of NEC. How much of that is due to the diazoxide? How much of that is due to the underlying sick and unwell nature of these infants that have these things going on is a little bit unclear. And particularly when you're in a situation where you are at the wall in terms of looking for treatments and ways of managing really severe hypoglycemia, how do you balance the risks of increased NEC against the benefits of getting the sugars under control? The clinical bottom line that they came out with really encapsulates that with diazoxide should be used with caution in neonates with hyperinsulinemic hypoglycemia, especially when other significant risk factors for NEC are present. But it's absolutely not a no but it's absolutely not a splash it around either. Now, in some ways, that's true of every medicine, every blood product we ever use. But the group here have spent a considerable time thinking about it, and it's worth a careful read. So, that's the challenging evidence-based medicine section of the archives this month. We look forward to you following the instructions to authors using the template and emailing editors just to check the where you're at. We have a, a rather supportive process where we go through a way of trying to encourage authors to follow the guidelines, um, but also to get the things into an Archimedesable state uh, before it goes out for formal peer review. Do come up with your questions, get advice, seek the ways of sharing your interests and your knowledge with the wider community. And hopefully soon, you too will be able to send this to your granddad just to show that you are on a podcast, which is like a radio show that they can listen to on their phones. And you too are a published Archimedes author, growing a select but large band of those who have done this in the past. Until next month, we will speak to you then.